Welcome to What's in Store with Carly and Chris. I am Carly Iacono, Senior Vice President at CBRE and a National Advisor on NetLease Properties. I am joined by my great friend and esteemed co-host, Chris Ressa, the COO of DLC. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. How are you? Amazing. We have such an interesting show planned for everybody today. And if you are new to What's in Store, we are simultaneously live streaming on LinkedIn and in Clubhouse. Feel free to join us on either platform. And the best way to participate is to type your comments and questions through back channel on Clubhouse or directly in the comments on LinkedIn. Would love to hear from you as we go through our topics. So today we are covering the metaverse and digital real estate and retail IPO activity. So pretty cool topic. And I just want you to know, Chris, that I feel much younger just talking about digital real estate and uh, definitely cooler that we're going to have an in-depth conversation on this. So thanks for bringing it to the forefront and pushing me to learn more about it over the last few months. Yeah, I've been playing around in these virtual real estate platforms and trying to navigate. And I am f- still fumbling around. I don't have my wits about me as I go through this, but I think it's really interesting stuff uh, for sure. I mean, and then it really came, you know, virtual reality is not new, the concept, but people, it's obviously growing, growing, growing. Mark Zuckerberg changes the name of Facebook to Meta or the parent company to Meta. And then all of a sudden you hear this Metaverse group, investment group, buys 116 parcel of land for $2.4 million. And then my head was just like, and I was That's like, real money. What is right? happening right now? Exactly. People are buying virtual land. What is going on? And how does this connect to, uh, you know, real, real estate? So I am, uh, I'm pretty fascinated by it and started to dig in. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, H&M opens a virtual store in this platform called seek and now i'm like scratching my head and going this is this is getting really interesting and then just the other day price waterhouse coopers and other companies are opening virtual offices and one of our friends uh jason ciano and uh, saber they already have a virtual office built and they're hosting team meetings in the virtual office as they're trying to get an understanding of what's going on. So I think the world is pretty fascinating and trying to get my arms around it and see the connection point uh, to what we do in retail and in retail real estate. I think the fact that you have major accounting firms, which are historically, I would consider more conservative as an industry, buying virtual real estate gives it validity, right? It's, it almost feels like now we're out of the gaming world. 
um, we're, we're into something real that maybe the rest of us need to stop and go, this isn't just for the kids. Like this is real businesses spending significant amounts of money to control something. So let's talk about what it, it really looks like now from what we know. Uh, and for everybody listening, Chris and I are real estate gurus. We are not gaming gurus. So I'm sure there are a lot of you out there who know a lot more about these platforms and the technologies than we do. We're really looking at this as, as what does it mean for retail and what does it mean for real estate moving forward? So if you have other insights uh, on the gaming and platform side, feel free to share them in the comments as well. But there's a few major platforms, right? So H&M bought on one that you mentioned. PwC, are they on the same platform? Do we know? Like, no. what does the landscape look like? Yeah, so I, I think, and this is one of the, I think, challenges that people are striking is because if you bought virtual real estate or opened a virtual office or opened a virtual store, it's only as long lasting as that platform. So if that platform went under financially, your virtual real estate or your virtual uh, store or office would, you know, I think go under with that. So there's different platforms being built. I think, you know, a couple of the big ones are Decentraland, the Sandbox. That's where I've been navigating and playing and changing avatars and spending way too much time on what my avatar looks like. <laughs> um, and so... Does it look like you? <laughs> is that... Is that how people are doing it, making them look like you, or are you like a green alien? I went with long hair since I have no okay. hair. <laughs> long hair. I went with blonde, long hair. <laughs> so, okay, that's weird. We'll let that go. Okay. Right? So, you know, I, you know, just to be able to go like this, with my hair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So I think when th that's like challenge one that people are talking about is crimson real estate. The other thing is real estate is people are from the real estate world. I keep hearing the comments that one of the biggest things about real estate is scarcity, right? You can only buy so much. There's only so much. It's finite beachfront property. <clears throat> but, and obviously this can change. I, I'm less concerned about the real estate front from a scarcity perspective because in the digital world, because these platforms are creating artificial meets and bounds. So there is at the moment, finite amount of land, just as there's a finite amount of Bitcoin or US dollars, you could print more, but if there, there, there's, it's, there's a certain amount uh, of it in circulation. So I'm less concerned about the scarcity. I think that this is the, the, the punchline, I think, when all these new alternative investments come to be, typically there's like a select few who make fortunes and there are a significant amount of people who go in and lose fortunes. We read about all the people who bought Bitcoin for a, you know, a dollar and now are gazillionaires, but if you bought Bitcoin in the last 12 months, it's it, it, unless you like got you, you deployed 
millions of dollars and you sold at the upswing, just like a stock trade, if you bought and held, it's not been like if you would have bought in 2009. And so I believe the same will happen in virtual real estate where some fortunes are about to be made because people quite candidly guess right. And then some people will lose because they bought on the wrong platform or the wrong location, right? I've been thinking about, right, location, 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 real estate. How does that apply to virtual real estate? So uh, how does it apply? If you're, uh, I'm going to interrupt you and just ask that question again. If you're walking through a virtual world, let's say the H&M store, and I wanted to visit H&M, do I then walk out on the street and see Sephora or whatever brands buy next to H&M? Are we creating an open air mall center basically in the virtual world? Or do you kind of click and say, no, now I want to go to Sephora and you teleport there? Like if it's, if it's really about your avatar walking in a set boundary next to other stores, I could see where proximity and land value would be real. If it's a list of places you click and you appear there, then it feels too, too vast. Yeah. So what I'm seeing happening now is still the proximity piece, but to your point, I was in Decentraland this morning and I hopped in a fountain and I was in a different, totally different place. I like teleported. So the, 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 one of the second big trades that happened was someone bought land next to Snoop where Snoop Dogg bought land for like $450,000 thinking that being next to Snoop Dogg's plot of land was going to be good proximity and value. I was thinking, so Justin Bieber did a virtual concert. He was an avatar. It looked more like Bieber than my avatar looked like me. So they spent some time on it. And I'm like, okay, if there's a concert hall, and that's where concerts are done and people have to congregate there. Sure, if I open up a t-shirt shop next to that concert hall, then I'm probably going to be all right. But again, I, it, it's, like, it's, it's like social media, right? In social media, if you got in early and you nailed it, maybe you made a fortune using social media. But today there are a significant amount of people who are using social media as branding, marketing, sales channels, and haven't made a ton of money. There's more people who have been in and haven't made a ton of money off of social media than there are who have been in and made fortunes through it. It's an easily accessible place, just like, um, just like the virtual reality is an easily accessible place. But um, I think... It's so new. That's where the opportunity lies, that it's so new and no one knows that you could, you know, hit pay dirt if you, what I would consider at the moment, guess right. And I think right now for me, I'm playing around trying to understand, do I think that one day I'll probably own some virtual real estate? Probably. Uh, because I like to dabble in, right? So I own cryptocurrency. I own NFTs. I'm not deploying a significant amount of my capital into that, but um, I would, <laughs> if Bitcoin got to a million dollars in five years, 
I would be, I would kick myself because I knew and I, I like, I could have put in a couple bucks. Am, am I going to get rich? I'm not, I'm not deploying enough capital in the Bitcoin to potentially get rich unless it goes to a billion dollars, but I'm in the game. And so I would probably do the same with virtual real estate. I'll dip my toes in and unless I figure out some strategy as it relates to virtual real estate, which I don't necessarily have today. And I think that's really the message. This is not going away. Just like cryptocurrency, in my opinion, is not going away. Will there be new players? Will it look different? Will the markets be different? Will it perhaps become more regulated and maybe more stable? Theoretically, but it's very, very early. And I think virtual real estate by its nature being based on uh, the blockchain has some level of instability right now as well because it's just too new of a world, too new of an industry to to clearly map out how the market is going to, to formulate and how it's going to work. But that doesn't mean it's child's play or irrelevant by any stretch. I think it's something that all of us in real estate need to say, this is weird, right? Well, we love tangible. This is our favorite word in real estate, right? It's tangible. Um, this is who we are as an industry, bricks and businesses. But there's this other piece that's not going away. So love it or hate it, I think talking about it and starting to understand the players and watching the moves that companies are starting to do is, is crucial because it, it's here. Yeah, I think – I don't think this is a fad. I think virtual right. reality is here and people will monetize on virtual reality for a long time. Virtual reality is not going away. It's just getting started. One of the things I will say that I think is a friction point is most of these platforms are not really capable on mobile today. And mm -hmm. I, I like run my life on my phone. If I could go on my phone and boom, be in the world easily, I think that's going to be when you start to get mass adoption, the minute it goes mobile today, the, you, you got to get, sit down at your desktop and it feels like a process, like a video game. That's really time intensive, which for many is a struggle. Um, what is the easy, right? You can go to open C just like with NFTs and buy virtual land. So the, 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 the marketplace to buy things, is becoming they're removing friction by the day so if you wanted to invest and buy virtual real estate you you could do that you know quickly um and pretty seamlessly so that you know comparative to actual real estate so that's interesting to me and i think what you're saying is it's really a early adoption technology point right we're going not we are but the people who are working on this are going to figure out how to make this experience integrated into our lives. So I was sharing with you earlier, I was gifted an Oculus for Christmas as a real estate thank you gift. Pretty great. Uh, so it showed up and I was like, what is this? Right. I'm not a gaming person. I spent zero time watching TV, even not, not in that world and used it with my kids. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating, immersive technology. So you go into this world, for anyone who hasn't tried it, I think it's amazing. And you really feel like you're there. You can travel to different places. You can experience things 
almost, you could argue better than reality. Now I'm a big real life person, so uh, I'm not going to go that far, but I could see where with future iterations of this technology, it just becomes how we experience the world. Nothing that's necessarily positive, but I think it's going to happen. So as I'm walking around in these different Oculus worlds, traveling, going to different places, I could easily see where you would walk into H&M, look at the things on the, the shelf, click something while in the Oculus, and have it shipped to your house. Very easy to see that happening quickly. And then you walk out of the store, and that's why I asked about the scarcity and the placement of the real estate, and go into the next store. And I think there will be a group of people who enjoy shopping and interacting with businesses that way, like the PwC meeting, right? Or the Ernst & Young, whoever it is. They enjoy going and meeting with their accountants in this world in a different environment. Sounds far-fetched, but when you experience how real, I think we're on version two of the technology only, right? Version two, how real it feels. I think we are very close, closer than we realize to having a, a virtual world experience that is immersive and people really cling to. Yeah. And if that becomes mobile, forget it. And the price point comes down. It's like it's like cell phones 20 years ago, right? Only a few people had them. Now it's like absolutely everybody has one in their hands at all times. So Yeah, I think... I think the the retail end of it is really interesting. So right now on the H&M store, you can only buy things for your avatar, right? So I think that having the retailer be able to sell things that are in real life I think you're going to start to, that's going to be interesting because I could totally see a place where H&M made something like, this is like a a Nike or Supreme move, right? H&M makes a shirt that you can only buy in the digital space. And then they lead up six month marketing campaign and saying the, the wow shirt, I don't know where I came up with wow, the wow shirt on Seek is going to be available in limited supply at H&M stores. There's every store is going to get 10 of them. They're going to be able to sell those for unbelievable pricing, right? The moment that like the people in the game who are like, oh my God, we have it in the game. I need it in real life. There are, there's going to be some real interesting retail plays from it. Um, By the way, I haven't been in Seek. I've been in Decentraland and I've been in, the sandbox. I haven't tried the Oculus. The H&M store looks beautiful. They did an amazing job based on the video I saw online. It looks incredible. Um, and if you go through, like the first thing you do in Decentraland is you you make your avatar and you spend like a lot of time creating like the clothes and this and that. And in normal video games, selling skins and things like this has been around for a while and there's a huge business. So being able to sell digital clothing, like unique clothing that you can't get anywhere else, that's gonna play out, that's gonna be a win, hands down. Converting that to real life clothing, that's going to be a huge game changer. There's going to be huge margin in that business, especially the ones who are early, there's going to be huge margin in that business. And you know, at some point, if virtual worlds get 
cluttered with Ralph Lauren, H&M in every clothing store, then, then maybe not. But at the moment, H&M's got this store. I'd be in, I'd be ready, like creating like this special shirt on the seek and that everyone loves or special cool pants and, you know, making them in real life in six months and selling that would, that would be like the fancy like song for Applebee's. It would be that craziness of a marketing in my opinion. So I think there's huge opportunity in retail in virtual and uh, we'll see where it lands, where they locate the stores. The real estate part is going to be fascinating. Um, do you think you will ever get to a point where you're in, in your broker, Carly, where you're, I already said that I, I, at some point I will buy land. Do you think you will be selling virtual land and making a commission off of selling virtual land? Uh, if it's profitable, yes, of course. <laughs> right. I'm not going to miss an opportunity. Come on. This is the core nature of a broker. If I can sell it and make money, yes, sounds good. Absolutely. So, so um, Anne Ann says here, do we ever think that we'll see 1031 be applied to virtual real estate? So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a quick stab. Then you go. So my, my stab okay. is on. So, and the first thing is, I don't know, but I would lean toward yes, but we're a long ways out because I would compare like to cryptocurrency and how long and challenging it's been to get, you know, regulation into that. And in the beginning of crypto, there were, there were some people who were trying to, they were selling a property and there was a, there was a point in time where people are like, should I have the, uh, the buyer pay me in crypto to avoid paying taxes on the capital gain side, right? Before regulation happened with crypto. Um, and I don't know how that all played out, but so the answer is I'm sure regulation will make its way into virtual real estate, like 1031. Um, but I think we're the, the government's always significantly behind the technology um, and I think that, um, it'll be a while before we see things like that. I think before we even get to that, I think real estate companies are, are going to try to figure out the, the basics of value creation in real estate. How do I take a piece of land? How do I build a building and monetize the building? Like if I'm, am I going to build an apartment building so people can, avatars can live in my apartment building or am I going to. Am I going to build a an exclusive, um, call it congregation space, like workspace, so people can or play space like that's exclusive that people can come in? Maybe I build a bar that you need to have X Y Z to come into that club and dance and have a party and whatnot and drink virtual beer. I don't know if virtual beer plays out. I think people want real beer, but. Um, back to, to Anne's question on the, the 1031, that's an interesting one. I think my perception would be that it's too decentralized, right? 1031 is a U.S. law. Uh, it's very narrow in scope. It's very regulated. If anything, it's been 
shrinking in definition, certainly not expanding. You know, just six months ago, we were worried it was going to disappear completely. So thinking of that expanding to what is a decentralized global platform, I don't, I don't see it. I wish, of course, I wish we could 1031 everything. Uh, my favorite, favorite four numbers. But um, I, I don't, I, I just don't see that happening. I think virtual real estate by its nature has a lot of uh, issues with regulation and, and that's tied to cryptocurrency. So unless crypto becomes like the US dollar, which yeah, I don't think it's ever going to happen quite the same way for good or for bad, I don't think we're going to see those sort of opportunities from a tax perspective. I think it's going to kind of live on its own. That's a great point on the on the decentralization um so i i think there's you know if i were to sum up virtual real estate i think there's some interesting opportunities um the prices are already getting really interesting and you're it's not like early days of crypto you're not buying land for 10 bucks so in virtual real estate um so but I think the opportunity is interesting and I think some people will make fortunes. You know, one last thing, and on 1031, I think the other piece is that people are struggling. Is it actually real estate? Wired put out an article that says you're buying numbers and digits, computer numbers and digits, not buying real estate. So uh, I think that's the, the piece that I, I, I think government will also struggle with as it relates to regulation. But I think there's interesting opportunity. I think, you know, the retailing opportunity is exciting to me. I think it's, I think it ends up being just like e-commerce, I think in the long run helps stores. I think virtual real estate and virtual retailing will help physical stores. I think that's the most immediate thing we're, we're already seeing and going to continue to see that it is a, a branding goldmine, marketing goldmine for retail that will drive people back to traditional bricks and mortar in their real life. Yes. But it's another touch point, And I think it will yield a lot of um, excitement. Like you said, everyone will want the, the digital items and that's going to increase the loyalty to the brand in the real world. So. That's the easiest piece. And I think the one we'll see more and more. Okay. All so right. Let's pivot to the next topic we had. And if anyone else has comments, uh, please share pricing so we can get a handle. I'll, I'll share. So if you go to the way to look at it is you can download the app OpenSea. So this is where NFT a lot. This is a marketplace where NFTs and a bunch of things are sold. So you can see different plots of land type in Decentraland OpenSea virtual land on Google and you can go and you can see pricing and it, it, it won't be listed. It might not be listed in us dollars. It might be listed in uh, crypto. Then there might be a conversion that you can see, but I've seen as low as like 15 grand to, you know, there was just a sale of a $450,000 parcel next to Snoop Dogg. So it's getting, it, it's growing rapidly. <clears throat> so, Moving to our next topic, we had a record year in IPOs. There was a lot of retail DTC consumer product IPOs last year, 2021. And so I think what we want to talk about is all these companies went IPO and they get 
in, in it, you know, new new capital stack to their whole business model. And what do they do from there? I think is really interesting. And you know, Carly and I went and we we, we researched a few of the brands, um, some of which is a little uh, self, uh, you know, for for me because they're they're tenants of DLC. Uh, but I think we, we, we looked at some of these retailers, we looked at the whole IPO landscape and, and what are these companies doing? I think is interesting after they go public, um, and, and how are they impacting the retail industry is, you know, to me, interesting. we're not stock gurus. So that's not what we're going to talk about in the IPOs. We're going to talk about, you know, what they're doing as they've gone public and is it improving their retail business? So, so let's start with just a little bit of background for anyone who hasn't been following this. 2021 was, I think, the most active IPO year in 20 years, yeah. maybe even longer uh, when you look at the data. So given all of the, what you would think would be headwinds, right, with all the, the retail issues with the virus and shutdowns and all this, which, you know, ended up not really playing out like everyone predicted, much, much better for retail. But given everything <clears throat> that was in play, why did so many companies turn to an IPO? What is the benefit of an IPO? Um, I have some commentary, but would you like to jump in? Sure. I think, you know, I think the, one, original founders, it's a way for them to cash out. Uh, so there's that. Uh, two, it's a way to get to the public markets and access to capital to grow. If, if, one of the things I would say is if you look at a lot of the IPOs, <clears throat> some are, but, but many, especially of these unicorn tech companies, they're not necessarily to scale yet. And what you see in a lot of these e-commerce and DTC brands is they're trying to get to scale so they can get to profitability. And getting to scale and profitability is really costly. And they run into this piece where it's just a, you know, a money pit to get to scale and going public. If they've got good growth metrics, it, as long, if they got to scale, the profit would be unbelievable. Um, so, and then <clears throat> there's a bunch of other reasons. Those are two like reasons we're seeing right now. Like the growth story, I think is a really big piece of what we saw last year. And investors, since there's so much runway and growth, the wider pool of investors wants a piece of that action and a piece of that growth. I've also seen, although it's probably a smaller motivator, but a lot of discussion about retaining top talent through offering yeah, sure. stock incentives, right? And involvement because the labor market is so competitive and everybody is buying for the, the same top talent that private companies feel that they can't compete. So again, I'm sure that's not the main driver, but I thought given the labor market, that was another interesting element that was driving the activity. Yeah, I, I remember when UPS IPO'd, right? UPS, they were already like, for all intents and purposes, at massive scale when they IPO'd. Um, so, and they had different, <coughs> you know, different reasons for IPO. One, one of my neighbors was one of the millionaire UPS drivers who had stock for 30 years. So it was pretty cool. But um that the companies that are IPOing today are m most of them are much earlier, right? you, whether it's in the, 
you know, the, the biotech or just tech. <clears throat> we had a couple of retailers that I would have thought were at scale, but they were owned by private equity. Private equity wanted to cash out. And so they, they moved them to the, the public markets. Um, and th those are a couple that really interested me on the retail landscape. Um, so one that, one that I didn't think was going to IPO was because there was a lot of chatter in the arts and craft space pre-pandemic. And then Joanne made so many strong pivots, converted to omni-channel so well, and it was, the market timing was perfect, and they IPO'd last year. Um, and I encourage everyone to go to their investor presentation that they just released at the ICR um, and look to see what they the next move is now that they're public and what they're doing, because I think they've got a really, really solid plan. And that was such an interesting capitalization on timing yep. example, right? Yeah, so true. arts and crafts were... We're an industry we've had for a long time and it was fine, but then you have this pandemic where everyone is suddenly taking up all new hobbies because they're stuck at home for two years, right? So there was a, a real shift in consumer behavior. Valuations were high. They had a banner year sales-wise. So you put all that together and it really is just this confluence of factors that make an IPO possible. And to your point, where they go from here, I think is much more interesting. You can see why it works for them and good for them for making that all come together. But how does this translate to growth and stability now? I think well, but yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at a page where so they talk about like the, the, the byline pickup in store in there in there that they've, they've, they've done and their e-commerce platform. But they're spending a lot of money in the stores. Um, they 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 have three core initiatives as it relates to the store. So it's experiential design elements, content improvements, and service enhancements. They say that um, some key stats. They're going to invest in. They're going to refresh fifty stores in fiscal year twenty three. The investment will range big range from one hundred fifty thousand to three million dollars. Um, they've identified about 60% of their total locations that they want to refresh and, and, and then 30%, instead of refreshing them, they're going to move those stores. They're going to relocate them. They're not closing them and they're not leaving them out for naught. And th th their expected average net sales lift is 15 to 75%. And so like, to me, this is like, th they, they, in, they went public, they, really have mastered the omni-channel experience in digital and physical and taking a little bit of a playbook out of target and they're investing you know millions and millions of dollars into the stores and i'm like man so this is a really strong story coming out of an ipo um, i personally visited the first real transformation that cost a fortune in columbus where in the, they have like a, a crafting education class center in the middle of the, where they'll teach it. So, so Joanne, I think sells more sewing machines than anyone on the planet. And they like own uh, the majority market share of the sewing market, which I'm not a sewer. Okay. I don't know anything about it, but, <laughs> but 
if you go in the store, it made me want to sell. It was, they have this cool crafting room in the, in the center and they, uh, classes, the store looked incredible. The colors, the ideas and content, right? I think there's probably a lot that Joanne can do in, you know, I don't know if they have a partnership with Pinterest, but in with Pinterest, but circling back, I think they IPO'd and like when you IPO, right? Investors want you to grow and now you have some money and what are you going to do? And what they're doing to me is really, really incredible. And I'm really interested in what happens with them, uh, which right now, I think the other piece of the IPOs and not, not, not unique to this year's IPOs, but what was the number of IPOs that are, that are less today than they were when they IPO'd? Right. So the retail IPOs, I believe the number was 70 out of 74, or 70 out of 75 that are trading lower significantly, six, eight, 10% than they were one year ago or one year before on their IPO days. So that's, that's not great. Right. So what does that mean? Right. We have all these companies that IPO'd. We've got 75 big retail names that IPO'd just last year, roughly. And they're trading down. Retail, DTC, and consumer product, but yes. Right. Yeah. And, right. and, and I, I think it's, you know, if I'm an investor of any of these, it's like, what are you going to do next to get to the growth that the, the story that when you came public that we originally invested in? And I think Joanne, and just take a look at their deck, they're, they're an interesting one that is doing things that are like are exciting from a growth perspective, both financially and, and, you know, with the intangible. So, um, yeah, that was one that I so thought you, was interesting. Do you think you have to go backwards to grow then? And again, we're not stock analysts, anyone listening. I don't know if these are good investments on the stock market, but from a business perspective, would you think big picture that that would make sense that they would IPO, they start to implement the strategic plan, which might include, store closures, repositioning, new stores, capital intensive ventures. So that would likely make their profitability go down a little bit while they're executing this plan. Or do you think they were just really, really overvalued because of all the hype in the market in 21? I think it depends on the company, both. both, but it depends on the company. Some don't have to shrink to grow. They don't have to take one step back to go two steps right. forward, but clearly Clearly, we you don't have to go as far as whether it was Casper or WeWork. There's a lot of companies that got these crazy valuations. And then as investors dug in, they were like, time out here. Time out. Right. So I, I think that it depends. But there's definitely the the unicorn status get and these you know valuations. People get excited with the growth story uh, real quick. I'm not sure how much you know about Masters Firm, but that was a name that stood out to me. So they had bankruptcy filings. They had just a lot happening, right? Corporately, structurally, with their locations, with their sales. It wasn't a really great story. And then I believe they filed in 2021, right? Yeah. Am I correct? They were one of the ones that actually did go public. So 
when I look at that, it's amazing to me that they could access the public debt market given such a tumultuous last few years. So where do you think that puts them? Was this the the, the cash infusion that they needed to sort of get the business model uh, back on track? Or do you think stories like that, that maybe it, it was good timing, but it's not going to create long-term stability? This is all prediction, I know, but that was really a name that I was so, shocked by. I haven't done a lot of homework on Mattersure, but my take of it from what I do know would be the following, right? One, when you come out of bankruptcy, hopefully your financials are a lot cleaner. Two, there's a lot of new leadership and changing of the guard. And then three, their timing hit because we were in this home and people are looking at their bed and their mattress and their couch. And, you know, mattress has always been a good business. And you start to see there's a lot of new products in their sector, whether it's purple or whomever that they're carrying. So they had this, to me, total um total kind of timing in this conversion of awesome things for timing whether the the, the home the, the the hot home sector new leadership coming out with cleaner balance sheet new products all in one converging that set up a good growth story for them they closed a lot of unprofitable stores at a bankruptcy and so set up a good story Okay. Yeah. So maybe this is the, the push they need to move forward in a more positive way. Yeah. I think, um, you know, another one that came um, was Torrid. So interesting uh, story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Torrid, obviously, you know, they're, they're selling plus sizes and they have really, I think, really strong branding appeal here um they're really messaging their messaging is on point and if you look you know the the plus size market is enormous um today and they only have a small share even though they have 600 stores and so um i think it's like 85 billion they said in their deck and so I think they, they're very focused on brand. They're focused on customer acquisition. They're really focused on uh, those two avenues. One of the things they highlight in their deck is they are profitable on both e-commerce and in physical stores, which I think gives them a huge runway to actually do what they say in their business model and focus on the branding, focus on customer acquisition, on the marketing and new products. So they they say in their deck they want to be the biggest or the best DTC company. So that's another thing. They're a physical store, but they're DTC, they're direct to consumer. So I think that's really interesting that they have 600 physical stores and they're DTC. You know, we don't we think about these DTC companies as these just on digitally native brands. And so this was a physical brand that's DTC. So they're focused on product and brand. And that's where they're going. And I think it's interesting when you compare them and Joanne, both going public, right? And they have different strategies. Both are doing well in the omni-channel experience. 
but where Torrid's going is really focused on product brand and their, you know, customer acquisition experience and where, you know, where, um, Joanne's going is really this, these physical improvements in the store. And I think it's just a good, interesting thing to see when someone IPOs, what, a retailer IPOs, what they do. And what they think is the fastest way to increase profitability. Yeah. Right. And it, it does come back to the physical store. Like we've been saying for years, two of us, physical stores are more profitable than online e-commerce operations. They feed off each other. But we're seeing this with the companies that are going public. They're not going public and saying, ah, we're going to close a bunch of stores and do 10 minute delivery from, you know, a, a warehouse. They're saying we're going to renovate our stores. We're going to work on our merchandise and our product placement and the actual store experience. That's where the money's going, seems like, for most of these retail companies that are doing the IPO. So if nothing says physical retail is important uh, other than this, I think we have a case, right? We have all this money coming in, massive cash, cash infusion from an IPO over and over, and it's, that's how it's being deployed in a lot of cases. Yeah. So I think Torrid's got a really rock solid plan. It's just different than Joanne and their businesses are in different places. They're in different product segments, but I thought, I thought Torrid's doing an excellent job in their presentation and their stock is uh, taking a hit, but based on what they put in their deck, it seems like a pretty sound plan. I, I thought it was really interesting. And what really caught me is how profitable they were on both channels. So that was, and, and they really highlighted that, which a lot of retailers um, and DTC brands don't have the ability to say. So th the other one that, you know, isn't as a uh, physical real estate story is that, uh, that we, we did some homework on was thread up, which, you know, they're spending money and investing in like really two places, which is one, according to their presentation infrastructure. So they're, they're spending money on real estate and infrastructure and building out their logistics, right? So that's one, right? Because, you know, their e-commerce and, and getting the logistics right is important. And then the second place they're spending a ton that I didn't see as much in Tord and Joanne is on data and really understanding the consumer behavior and understanding what to deliver to the marketplace. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and yeah, but they have a whole map on there, right? If you were a real estate person and you were an industrial, you should go look at ThreadUp's map because they're telling you where they want to be and where they want to where they want to open up distribution centers across the country, um, and uh, and how they see their logistics going and what they need for a supply chain. Which, you know, after all we've heard on supply chain, it doesn't surprise me, but it's just interesting to see that different retailers and DTC brands are in different life cycles, right? Like that's not what Torrid and, and Joanne were really talking about in their presentation. So where do you think this puts us for 2022? Everything I've seen is that IPO activity will be significantly less than 21 because of supply chain headwinds, because of the, the sentiment in the market with investors looking for maybe businesses with different business models, um, maybe a little more stability. That's all theoretical though. 
what do you think we're going to see for IPO activity in 22 and how will it compare to 21? I mean, I think the, the global, not the global, the, the IPO market in general is going to be less, you know, we had like a record year last year. It's hard to beat record year, I think. Um, we're going to see some interesting IPOs, right? Uh, if Instacart IPOs, that'll be really interesting and to see what they do want to go forward, right? That, that'll be, you know, there's a lot of talk about that. That will be. They've been talking yeah, about Instacart IPOing for a while. So that, 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 that's the one on the, that people are talking about, I think. Um, but we're we're going to have less just because there was a record year. But what I would say, there are a significant amount of retailers who are in good financial place right now to make some moves and scale. But, but the other thing, and, and I think you see probably, you know, DTC is kind of in tech is these unicorn companies, investors are kind of getting a little frustrated, as you mentioned, in the sentiment on what's happening there. But if you think about it on the just retail place, the amount of retailers that have, I don't know, let's pick a number, north of 100 stores that aren't public, probably the list is like few, right? There's there, there, uh, le the less. So you start to get to that point, look at, you know, Warby and Untucket. You start to get to that point, um, you know, there's usually a growth IPO story, right? Because typically if you can repeat, rinse and repeat, you can open up a store in all these different markets and it be successful, and you have consistent sales growth, it's like the ultimate IPO story. So over the course of time, when there was a chain that had 60, 70, 100 stores, well, and they repeated this and they kept growing sales, going public seems to be a natural course of action. So if we see any of those, and it seems like there's a lot in the food and beverage space, um, you, you have the potential for an IPO, if you just wanted to look at, you know, unit locations, I think, I think in the, and maybe my number of a hundred wrong, maybe it's 200. I don't know what the number is where you start to see, like, if you have this many stores, there's like no way you're not public. I don't know what the number is, but someone should do some research on that. I saw Neely on here. Maybe Neely can figure out what, like, <laughs> I'm sure she already knows every public, <laughs> every public retailer has at least this many stores. So, um, I think that, there seems to be a lot of food and beverage. And, and, and when you saw the food and beverage in 2021, there was, there was a ton of like uh, mergers, acquisitions, private equity in the F and B space. So, you know, that, that could be, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the restaurant space. Um, you know, a lot of tailwind, a lot of headwinds coming out of the, the start of the pandemic. But that'll be interesting to me. Uh, you know, we saw Portillo's last year, which was a small, smaller in unit count, right? 60 locations, I think, or something like that. But the stores do insane volume. So um, we saw Dutch Brothers last year too in the, the food Brothers, and beverage right. space. And, 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 and something else we're seeing too, right? The, the, the retailers that are at scale, right? They're buying other companies. You saw Foot Locker buy WSS, um, which is like a hundred store chain. 
And you, you, you might see more of that, right? It is like a way to grow is to, to you know, buy another brand. I think there's going to be some these public companies that create new brands. I think you're going to see other brands bought in 2022. Um, so I think it's going to be exciting. I think it's going to depend on valuation, right? How stable or unstable the, the stock markets are, how interest rates are playing out. We hear they're going to go up four times, you know, how, how that impacts overall company valuations, I think will dictate the volume of IPOs. If valuations stay insanely high, yeah. sure. there's going to be a, a rush of IPOs, right? Everybody wants to cash out for lots of different reasons. If the valuations come in, interest rates go up, the whole financing picture changes or the metrics of the IPO change, then I think we'll see more of the acquisitions, the mergers, and maybe they don't go the public market route. So it, it's going to be a more volatile year than 21 would be my prediction. Interesting. Um, what else, Carly? Anything else? We're, we're I, I think that's now. it. We covered, we covered the IPOs. It's going to be, an, a, I think, a great space to keep watching. There'll be more consolidation, like we said. We're really interested to watch the companies that IPO'd last year and how they continue to perform what they do with the money and what that means for their overall business model. So maybe we'll do an update in six months on how the, the companies that IPO'd last year are actually faring, or maybe a year. I'm not sure how long it'll take to get real data. But that's something I think we keep watching to see what they're doing with this money and what that means for fiscal real estate. All right. Carly, thank you. This was great. Everyone out there, thank you for listening and tuning in. Really appreciate it. So much fun. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to our monthly show, What's in Store with Carly and Chris. We will see you all next month. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye. Oh, you're just